Welcome to the Daily Boogie. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Happy Earth Day. Does anyone know why Earth needs a day? Isn't every day Earth Day, really? Like, maybe if we lived on the moon, we could celebrate Earth Day. Is there a moon day? What about a Uranus day? Can we do one of those? I remember a Uranus day back in 1972. That was a hell of a day. (laughs) I wasn't alive in 1972. But sometimes I wish I were. Because Uranus day would have been so much fun. Hello there. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Another episode of the Daily Boogie podcast. Absolute pleasure to see you all there. Hope you've had a lovely weekend. Hope you had a lovely Easter. I certainly did. And hope you had a lovely Earth Day, ladies and gentlemen. I know you're all terribly excited. How did you celebrate Earth Day? (laughs) These days that people come up with. Pluto Day did get cancelled, yes, and it was a travesty for the Plutarians. The Plutarchs, as they prefer to be known. Um, Yeah. You know, I've never actually had anyone ever come up to me and say, Happy Earth Day. Have you? And if somebody did come up to me and say, Happy Earth Day, I would probably, you know, respond with something along the lines of, Don't touch me. Why are you talking to me? Go over there. Go away. I have to stand over here now. (laughs) Something like that. I don't want to talk to anybody who celebrates Earth Day. And if you are somebody that goes around and says to people, Happy Earth Day, um, good luck in the rest of your life. It's the best way I can put it. I think you're going to be particularly particularly depressed by the end of it. But thanks everyone for joining us on this Earth Day. I'm amazed that you could find the time to join us doing all the Earth Day things, all the Earth Day celebrations, like turning the lights off, for example. Uh, Watching an Al Gore documentary, that would be on the cards for Earth Day. The kids love a good Al Gore documentary on Earth Day. It's the Earth Day tradition here in this house. What else would you be doing? Uh, Bathing. You'd be washing the dishes in your own bath water and then bathing in the sink, perhaps, and drinking from the toilet to save money. You'll be walking everywhere because think of the fossil fuels. And if you're in a particularly cold place on planet Earth this Earth Day, then hopefully you're freezing to death in the dark so everybody else around the world can live because that's what it's going to take. So thanks so much for joining us on this Earth Day. Happy Easter several times yesterday. Oh, good. Drinking pee to save the planet. Absolutely original, Rev. Thanks for joining us. By the way, if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. Become a subscriber by hitting that subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And of course, if you would like to save the Earth then the only way I know how is by following me on Twitter, at Boogie Bumper. Apparently, that's what I've been told. Follow Boogie Bumper, save the planet, man. Can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. There's, um, there was, I was reading, I don't know how many of you guys read a website called Zero Hedge. It's quite good. It's mainly a financial website. So they deal in markets and that kind of thing. And I was reading it earlier this morning, came across a story about the price of living in major cities and urbanization. 
And that got me thinking about things that I was talking about a couple of years ago when, you know, much like today, nobody was really paying attention. <laughs> so I thought we'd do a bit of a rehash and go over a couple of these topics in regards to mass migration, the corralling of populations into urban centres, where this idea comes from, why they want this to happen, and the cause and effect of such an action. Because it's going to be something that we're all going to have to deal with, whether we like it or not, unfortunately, one way or another. So we've been told by none other than the UN. So we will get into that. But first, if I may, just a little bit of quick follow-up here. We have been tracking, haven't we, the censorious nature of the tech boffins and governments around the world. So when I came across the reporting that Sri Lanka had shut down social media during the terrorist attacks, I thought, well, surely, surely to God, that reporters and journalists would finally see the folly of allowing the government to do such things like shut down communications, like social media and whatnot. I mean, this isn't World War II. We don't have to hijack the phone lines to prevent the Nazis from tapping them. This is a different kettle of fish entirely. And if 0.000001% of people of a particular, would you say, ideological persuasion are indeed the only dangerous ones, then why should we shut down social media and access to communication for the 99.99999% who aren't? I think that's a question worth, worth asking. So... You know, when I saw this headline pop up as I was perusing the New York Times earlier today, I thought, oh, good, good. <laughs> the journalists, finally, now they'll see the folly of censoring social media. Finally, now they'll see the folly of governments being having the ability to shut down communication between citizens. But alas, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was disappointed. Sri Lanka shut down social media. My first thought was good. As a tech journalist, I'm ashamed to admit it, but this is how bad the situation has gotten. Okay. Let's see the argument here. This is the ugly conundrum of the digital age. When you traffic in outrage, you get death. <laughs> a rather melodramatic opening, you might say. So when the Sri Lankan government temporarily shut down access to American social media services like Facebook and Google's YouTube after the bombings, they have to say temporarily, Duh, it's just, just temporary, guys. Just a temporary overreach by the government who loves you and trusts you and wants to protect you from everything on Facebook and YouTube. We're just, it's just a precautionary measure to make sure that nobody can communicate on Facebook while the government is doing its thing. We just want to put your mind at ease. After the bombings there on Easter morning, my first thought was good. Good because it could save lives. As of this point, I am yet to see anybody articulately and concisely can, you know, put forward a convincing case that Facebook or live streaming or YouTube kills people. I haven't seen that yet. Has anybody seen that yet? Now, I know that they'll say that people look at YouTube videos and therefore become radicalized and then do all kinds of heinous things like we saw in Sri Lanka, like we saw in Christchurch. But I'm not sure how 
banning, uh, you know, an access to YouTube or Facebook or Twitter after the fact is going to prevent that. I can't believe that I'm sitting here today reading a journalist saying that shutting down Facebook and YouTube will save lives. Good, because the companies that run these platforms, this is the article, seem incapable of controlling the powerful global tools they have built. Well, who would control the New York Times then? Maybe somebody should shut down the New York Times when some kind of terrorist event takes place. Oh, no, of course. No, that, that, these rules don't apply to us, you see. That's, that's because we're the legitimate media here at the New York Times. Here at the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and all the other rest of the gypsies that now infest this space called mainstream media. We are the legitimate ones. So you come to us. Remember the WikiLeaks? Hey, if you want to learn about the WikiLeaks, you come to us. We'll tell you about it. Don't don't you go looking for it yourself now. Oh, no, no, no. Big smacks. Naughty children. No, you come to us when you want to learn what's going on in the world, and only us. For example, after the fire of the cathedral at Notre Dame, ladies and gentlemen, you'll remember that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube were being chastised by the corporate press, the likes of CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, et al., for not taking down, quote-unquote, conspiracy theories about the fire fast enough, never mind the fact that It can't possibly be a conspiracy theory while the fire is still burning and there is no official story to say is wrong. If there's no official government report or story about how a fire started, how can it possibly be a conspiracy theory? Wouldn't it just be a theory? Wouldn't it just be a theory? Conspiracy implies that there is already some kind of official narrative that you are arguing against. Thus, you know, which is trying to be kept secret. The, the reality of it is trying to be uh, made secret. Therefore, it becomes a conspiracy. If there's no official story, there's no conspiracy. It's just a theory. Listen to this. Again, a reporter for the New York Times. Good, because the toxic digital waste of misinformation that floods these platforms has overwhelmed what was once so very good about them. And indeed, by Sunday morning, so many false reports about the carnage were already circulating online that the Sri Lankan government worried more violence would follow. Why? Why? See, call me old-fashioned, call me ancient, call me some kind of ignorant, but I would suspect that I would be worried more violence would follow because people... There seems to be... The Sri Lankan government doesn't think much of its citizens, ladies and gentlemen. The Sri Lankan government thinks a a big chunk of its citizens are going to watch something on YouTube and then go out and kill a bunch of people. For me, that's not a problem with YouTube. That's a problem with your citizens. Sorry. Is that racist or something now? Is is, Is that racist, is it? If you are running a country and you need to ban access to YouTube after a terror attack because you fear that so many people are going to watch YouTube videos and get some kind of conspiracy theory and then go out and blow up a bunch of shit then I'm afraid your citizens are the problem, which is a poor reflection on you in the government. 
If you have a mass of people in your population who can watch YouTube and then be inspired to blow themselves up because of it, I'm sorry, you have a lot of knuckle-dragging, drooling fuckwits in your citizenry. Not YouTube's problem. It's your problem. It's their problem. YouTube didn't blow anything up. Twitter didn't blow anything up. Facebook didn't blow anything up. People in your country did. For whatever reason. But that's who did it. It pains me as a journalist, the author continues, and someone who once believed that a worldwide communications medium would herald more tolerance to admit this, to say that my first instinct was to turn it all off. But it has become clear to me with every incident that the greatest experiment in human interaction in the history of the world continues to fail in ever more dangerous ways. It's like we're living in, a, in two different universes here. What the hell is she talking about? Where are all of these YouTube and Facebook and Twitter inspired terrorist attacks? Who is, who is reading the Twitter terms of service and then deciding to blow up a church? Can anybody tell me that? Got to, got to ban it. Got to ban Twitter. Is there some kind of underground YouTube extremist movement that I'm unaware of that actually, you know, bombs things because they love YouTube so much? What the fuck are these people talking about? Fail. Exactly. Fail in the, the greatest experiment in human interaction. She's talking about the internet continues to fail in ever more dangerous ways. It's the internet's fault. It's not one person's fault. It's not the per it's not the fault of the person who strapped explosives to their chest and walked into a crowded restaurant or cafe or place of worship. It's not their fault. It's the internet's fault. The author continues, in short, stop the YouTube, Facebook, Twitter world. We want to get off. We want off this ride according to the New York Times. Ban the lot. Get rid of it. Incredible stuff. And of course, if all of the terrorist attacks in the world, ladies and gentlemen, are indeed inspired by the internet, well then I guess we need the government to step in and take care of us, to look out for us, to protect us. Because governments and journalists now are all too ready and, you know, other well-meaning people in society as well. Let's not let them off the hook. But governments and journalists and etc. are all too ready these days to shift the blame from perpetrator to the informational superhighway. But I, I, you know, I suspect most people in the real world would take the understanding that if you wander out onto a busy highway and get hit by a truck, it's your fault and not the fault of the person behind the wheel. More or less. And just a quick one before we get into our main topic here. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I was under the impression that courts were essentially there to reflect community values. This is an interesting one. Courts going soft on child rapists. Review, uh, review of jail sentences revealed. The Australian examinated... Uh, examinated. Ugh, it's late. I'm tired. 
The Australian examined data from the County Court of Sentences handed down for rape, sexual penetration of a child and incest in cases where the maximum jail term was 25 years or 300 months. In 2017-18, the average term of imprisonment for raping an adult was 79 months, six months more than the mean jail term for sexual penetration of a child under 12. Crimes against children and the vulnerable are the most heinous and cowardly of crimes. She said the law already recognised differences in sentencing severity based on power imbalances of people with authority over children, the impaired and the elderly, but it needed to be reflected more strongly. Miss Johnson said the 2017-18 average of 73 months was 24% of the maximum available. I understand the max sentence will not be applied in every instance because judges require some wiggle room in which to apply greater and lesser sentences according to individual considerations, but 75% is way too much wiggle room. When was the last time anyone got 25 years? In 2016-17, the average jail term for raping an adult was 60 months and the penalty for raping a child was 67 months. About six years. A little over six years. So I just wonder where our community values are being reflected here in the court system. This is a local story for the southern state of Australia known as the People's Democratic Republic of Victoria. But... This is a trend that I see repeated around a few jurisdictions around the Western world. Got a bag of crack in your pocket? Hey, you're going away for a long time. Like to touch those kids inappropriately? Ah. Hey, we all make mistakes. Don't be too harsh. You know how all, you know how awful it is for these kinds of people in prison. Can't allow that. Main story here. America's forced financial flight, ladies and gentlemen. Fleeing unaffordable and dysfunctional cities. Like I said, got this from Zero Hedge. And all of the articles we refer to during the show, of course, will be in the show notes if you want to read along at home. For hundreds of years, rural property has driven people to urban areas. Cities offer paying work and abundant opportunities to get ahead. And these financial incentives have transformed the humane populace from largely rural to largely urban in the developed world. Now, a new set of financial pressures are forcing a migration of urban residents out of cities which are increasingly unaffordable and dysfunctional. As highly paid skilled workers workers and global capital have flooded into high job growth regions, living costs and the costs of doing business have skyrocketed. Where not too long ago, $1,000 a month would secure a modest one-bedroom apartment in major urban job centres, now it takes $2,000 or $3,000 a month to rent a modest flat. Wages for the average worker have not doubled or tripled, and this asymmetry between soaring living costs and stagnant incomes is driving the exodus out of cities that are only affordable to the top 10% of wage earners or those who bought a house decades ago and have locked in low property taxes. Some of the reasons for these people, they're calling it a financially forced flight. Have you heard the term white flight before? because I suspect a lot of these things are connected and we'll get through it and I'll show you why. Uh, White flight is the term used for, you know, obviously white people in cities, leaving the cities and being replaced with mass migration, migrant workers, people of other ethnicities, people from other countries. 
Uh, one example would be London, where the ethnic English population of London is now below 35% or thereabouts, meaning 65% of the population of London are actually migrants or children of migrants. London being the capital of the UK, incidentally. Uh, similar trends exist in places like LA, New York. Thanks for the subscription, Laura. LA, New York, um, my home city here in Sydney, Melbourne. So we'll just go through a couple of these factors that are argued for here. Household income is stagnating as real world inflation erodes the purchasing power of income. Prices in high cost urban zones are increasing faster than in less pricey regions. Young households are burdened with student loan debt, making it financially difficult to buy a home. Income in high-cost urban areas is more heavily skewed by winner-take-most dynamics of finance and technology. Local government services cost more in high-cost urban areas, so city and municipalities are relentlessly increasing taxes, fees and licensing, pressuring all but the top tier of households. The sacrifices required to live in a high-cost urban area are no longer worth it. Traffic congestion, long commutes, high-stress jobs, homelessness, decaying infrastructure are outweighing the benefits of hipster urbanism. That's the Consumer Price Index for San Francisco. Since 1975 through 2000 to January 2019. Increasing tenfold. So as more people move into these big city centres and as prices go up, congestion increases. Congestion costs big cities millions and millions, probably billions of dollars each year. Every five minutes that's added on to a regular commute into a city centre in order to get to work costs the city money, costs them productivity. Then you have services, hospitals, roads, schools, etc. that need to be built and maintained Higher population, more cost. More tax, perhaps, as long as everything's doing well. But if everything was doing so well, why would so many people be leaving the cities now? And you might say, it's all just an accident. It's all just an accident. It's just random. It's just a random thing that's occurring in the cities. It's just one of those things. It's just a random event. No need to do any digging, no need to investigate any kind of policy drive from any kind of intergovernmental bodies or, or boards. No, no, no. None of that is taking place. This is all just a random migration of people due to things like climate change, right? And of course, people want to move into the cities so they can be close to the amenities and their jobs and whatnot. This is back in 2015. The world's population is becoming increasingly urban. Sometime in 2007 is usually reckoned to be the turning point when city dwellers formed the majority of the global population for the first time in history. Today, the trend toward urbanisation continues. As of 2014, it's thought that 54% of the world's population lives in cities and it's expected to reach 66% by 2050. Migration forms a significant and often controversial part of this urban population growth. In some places, particularly in poorer countries, migration is the main driver of urbanisation. In 2009, UN Habitat estimated that 3 million people were moving to cities every week. 
in global gateway cities such as Sydney, London and New York. Migrants make up over a third of the population. The proportion in Brussels and Dubai is even greater, with migrants accounting for more than half of the population. So how are cities coping and changing with this influx of both internal and external migrants? While the vast majority of migration policies are set on a national basis, it is increasingly common for cities to develop their own approach to integrating people who come to settle. And this has been a cause, ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll agree, of great consternation in places like Western Europe, where perhaps large influxes of mass migration, of people of other backgrounds from other parts of the world into small towns and big cities and urban areas alike, have some in the local population saying, well, we never asked for this, we never voted for this, what the hell is going on? Why is this happening? Uh, I remember during uh, one of the state elections in Germany in around 2015, I think it was mid to late 2015, I remember writing about it, uh, the biggest supporter of the, you know, the quote-unquote anti-immigration party, which would be Alternative for Deutschland, the AFD, uh, where they attained their most votes was in the poorest regions of eastern Germany, mainly from males aged between 25 and 42, something like that. Something like that. If I'm a bit off with the age, uh, I'll accept that. But it's around that. Places where it's harder for people to, to get work, they have high unemployment and high cost of living. And these were the ones most supporting the AFD. White flight, it's real. Let's go down here. The current white flight challenges a big idea of the post-Brexit Trump analysis of the white working class encapsulated by writers like Joan Williams in America and David Goodhart in Britain. A key message of Goodhart's celebrated book, uh, book, The Road to Somewhere, is that instead of left and right, the emerging political fault line is between the well-heeled internationalists, dubbed anywheres, and others strongly rooted to place, the somewheres. Most of us lie in between. Goodhart describes the internationalists as those with achieved identities based on educational and career success, which makes them comfortable with new places and people. The somewheres tend to be older and less educated. They are housewives, blue-collar workers, and the farmers for whom modern upheavals are more distressing. Goodhart writes that, quote, they have lost economically with the decline of well-paid jobs for people without qualifications and culturally too, with the disappearance of a distinct working-class culture and marginalisation of their views. See, I never got, I never, I never understood the outrage when people who perhaps, you know, lack the ability to articulate themselves, express their displeasure with mass migration and how their local community was changing, how it was shifting from what they knew, from what it looked like when they were growing up. Because just because you don't have a particularly silky way of speaking doesn't mean that your voice shouldn't be heard. Although a lot of people would say that it does mean your voice should be heard because you may say something a little clumsy about somebody from a different part of the world. Therefore, you're branded as a racist and your views become irrelevant instantaneously. But I never understood that because, you know, somebody who isn't, uh, you know, as adept at speaking as somebody else, it doesn't mean that their views aren't valid doesn't mean that their views aren't valid. 
Professor Joan Williams is the author of Class Cluelessness in America. When asked by the Harvard Business Review why many unskilled workers don't move to take new jobs, Williams reiterated that they do not have the geographic or social mobility which which energizes the American dream. They are unfashionably proud of their rootedness. But growing white flight seems to challenge this view, at least in Australia. Remember, people are leaving the cities and the cities are becoming more and more expensive to live, harder to live in. The cities are changing demographically. And of course, when people express some kind of you know, adverse reaction to this change, whether economic or social, they are branded as, you know, to the words of this obviously liberal sociologist, the disappearance of a distinct working class culture and the marginalization of their views. So I thought I'd show you this little video, just five minutes of this video. This was back in 2017, ladies and gentlemen, a taxpayer funded television station here in Australia called SBS did a special young, hip and far right. (laughs) And I just want to take a couple of, couple of moments here to watch, to show you how these people using the, you know, the methods that they use to get their message out and their views, how it's characterized by the taxpayer funded media down here in Australia, where of course, places like Sydney and Melbourne, are you know, a couple of the most expensive cities in the world to live and are going through this phenomenon, which is known as white flight, like many other cities around the Western world, especially in Western Europe, particularly South. day, Martin Selner studies law and philosophy. His nights are often spent here at the secret headquarters of his identitarian movement, secret where he's agreed to take us. Tonight they're planning an identitarian stunt, something they've become famous for. Now see, I don't fall on the side of identity politics, whether it's on the left or the right, so... I already have, you know, no particular affinity with this particular group or the identitarians of Europe, full stop. My belief and understanding is in times of economic prosperity, you're more likely to have people, you know, there's going to be less frictions between different social groups because everybody's making money. But when, you know, economic prosperity is on the downswing, people are more likely to have frictions between various social groups because it's easy to point to somebody else and say, well, it's all their fault. But logic plays a part here too. Now, if you flood a market, a worker market or a housing market with 1 million, 2 million, 3 million, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30% more people than there otherwise would be, you're going to fundamentally change the economics of that market. Demand is going to go up and supply is going to go down. Things become more expensive. If there's more congestion on the roads, just getting goods from one place from the warehouse to the store costs more, therefore the price of goods goes up. Ernie Banks, thanks for joining us, says uh, white flight is a well-known event since the 70s. It's still going. It's still happening. And it's happening even faster now. Ansage sein an diese Leute, aber auch an die Bevölkerung in Österreich, ein Zeichen der Hoffnung, dass wir uns dagegen wehren werden. Facebook. We'll use Facebook. People expect a strong signal from us. 
Remember the first article we opened with? Oh, we've got to shut down Facebook. Remember the story we reported on a couple of weeks ago? Facebook has now banned white nationalists from their platform. What are white nationalists, you might ask? Great question. You have to ask the SPLC. They declare everybody, including Donald Trump, to be a white nationalist. Ever expressed any kind of, would you say, uh, non-consensual view of mass migration in Europe? Well, you are now a white nationalist, apparently. Intelligence services are watching them as a potential security threat. In the room, I see mainly young men. They're part of a core group of some 400 Austrian members. And Martin says there are about 10,000 sympathisers and donors across the country. Good. The others are still in the production, right? Passed. So we meet at 20 Uhr Philipp from Burgdart, okay? Tonight, they're protesting against the city council, which wants to change the name of an historic landmark, a change they see as an attack on Austria's white Christian identity. White Christian identity. An attack on their white Christian identity. How how dare they feel aggrieved? See, we're obviously dealing with some kind of Neanderthal here, right? I mean, the guy, the guy must be at like a low-paid, low-class, scratching his ass, burping uncontrollably, you know, blue-collar worker, blue-collar slob, doesn't have any kind of formal education. He's not, he's not refined enough to understand the nuances of why certain cultural landmarks in his home country should be changed in order to be less offensive and more inclusive to others, right? That's, that's a hero's place, one of the most historic places in Vienna, just next to the parliament, and uh, all of Austria's history is taking place here. Die Pläne, ihn umzubenennen, in einen Platz der Republik zu verwandeln, sprich den Platz seiner Historie. They want to remove its history, rob it of its history. Genau das wollen wir als Identität. That's what we identitarians plan to prevent. History and remembrance are core parts of our identity. Martin uses an online call-out for more identitarians to join the action. Why would outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC be in lockstep with overreaching, flirting with totalitarian government bodies who wish to ban access to Facebook and YouTube and Twitter for certain groups or perhaps ban things like live streaming events on the street, you know, they call it IRL streaming, in real life streaming. Why would, why do you think that might be a problem in places like Western Europe for the elected officials? Why? Just a coincidence, I guess. Just a coincidence. Sicherheitsabstand, nicht das transparent am Fackel, der so extrem bitter. Das heißt, ein, zwei Meter dahinter kann man schon stehen. Their stunt is right inside the stunt. square. Their banner says, Heroes Place Stays. They're well equipped to do a Facebook Live, which instantly attracts hundreds of views. Ah, oh, hundreds of views! This must be stopped! We have to put a stop to this immediately! 
We must put a stop. Hundreds of views on Facebook Live. <gasps> the horror. Gee, imagine how many people could be murdered. Imagine the violence, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, these things cause death. In the words of the New York Times journalist, it's good that they're banning these. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that governments are shutting these uh, access to these platforms down. It's good. It's so dangerous. It's making the world a worse place. It's awful. They've got to go. We've got to get rid of them before everybody dies. <laughs> Hundreds of people watched it. Who knows? Who knows what kind of misery and death and destruction could become part of the fallout of this stunt? Yes, driving Ivan. Hundreds, hundreds, literally hundreds, my friend. It's quite beautiful, isn't it? I love a good flair. Europe, youth, reconquista. The last word referring to a key identitarian belief that they need to retake and protect Europe from Muslim migrants. After a few minutes, they get word the police are on. Notice, notice the SBS guy doesn't actually say what the Reconquista was because it was actually a historical event. It's not something that the the identitarians of Austria just dreamed up. They didn't just make it up. It was they are referencing something that happened hundreds of years ago. But he doesn't mention that. You see, nah, <laughs> irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Who cares what happened hundreds of years ago? It was a different time. Don't worry about it their way. We separate from Martin and arrange to meet up with everyone back at their secret HQ. After getting the, the banner unfurled successfully there and dispersing without the police stopping them, they're going to go back and get the video that they took of this out on social media. And that's what make this, makes this group different. They mount these events, maximum publicity, get it out on social media straight away. That's what makes this group different. See, if it was just a bunch of racist yahoos in the street waving signs and whatnot, then there would be no problem. That really wouldn't worry us. But they're using Facebook, ladies and gentlemen. <gasps> like so many mass campaigns on Twitter by people of other political persuasions in the past. You know, boycott campaigns, hashtag campaigns, this kind of stuff. Got to put a stop to this. When when can we ban when can we ban live streaming? Can we do it now? Can we do it right now, please? Please? This is incredibly dangerous. I mean hundreds of people were watching. Hundreds, literally. Within minutes of the stunt, Martin and his online stunt. team are writing a press release explaining their action and upload a video to YouTube. They say each stunt is carefully planned to stay just within the law. Oh. Change the laws then. The Facebook Live video has more than 18,000 views. You get a real sense of their popularity when you read the comments. Look at this. Europe's youth is awake. Very cool action. Respect. I love you. Four comments on the Facebook page. It means oh, the Nazis are coming to get us. This action speaks directly to their main target, 15 to 25-year-olds, who get most of their news and much of their views from social media. Ah. 
It's a problem. Gotta put a stop to it. Homeboy working on an Apple II. The next day, Martin wants to show me a place in his city okay. where he feels extremely uncomfortable and angry. And it's like uh, um, uh... where he feels extremely uncomfortable and angry. Now that was a little bit of editorialising there. Now I want you to watch this footage and tell me if he looks extremely uncomfortable and angry as he's walking around this part of town, casually chatting to the guy doing the interview. An area in Vienna where many migrants live, so it's like um, a Turkish street market now. So it's like it's changed a lot. Absolutely, a once Austrian market that is now almost completely Turkish and Muslim. The problem is the dynamics of demographics. The thing is, this section of Vienna is growing. It's the future of the whole city of Vienna. We deserve a country and a culture of our own. Oh. This is just a small. City. Did he just say we deserve a country and our culture of a culture of our own? God, that's horrible racism, isn't it? Surely there's enough Austrians of, of what you think is the correct descent to be able to balance it. <laughs> Surely there's enough Austrians of what you think is the correct descent to balance it out. It's just one little city. What are you worried about? It's just one little city. Don't worry about it. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, economic factors directly feed into social cohesion factors. Mass migration makes things more expensive. Housing, the cost of living, congestion, right? Not to mention people, you know, have every right to express their displeasure or anything else, really, about how, you know, their hometown might be changing in a particular way. That doesn't necessarily make them racist or evil. It's a legitimate concern that people have. Or so it might seem. If you look at the younger generation, we have 60 to 70% of the children who already have a migration background. And so within just a few decades, the population has been completely replaced. This kind of rhetoric has... <laughs> rhetoric. So he's giving, him, he's giving him statistics. 60 to 70% of the children already come from migrant backgrounds, which means in a few generations, we're talking about the population being replaced. Well, because if 60 to 70% of people under the age of 18 comes from, come from a specific background, then most of the adults in a few generations are not going to be Austrian. They're going to be from somewhere else. <laughs> so what does the reporter do? Well, this kind of rhetoric. Rhetoric? What are you talking about? He just gave you a statistic. <laughs> Statistics are not rhetoric. Landed Martin in trouble. Identitarians call it the great replacement. Others consider it hate speech. Hate speech. Just the things I told you, just the facts that I stated are already considered hate speech in Austria. If you say By the way, look how uncomfortable and angry he is, just as a side note, apparently. We become the minority in our own country. You've had hate speech yeah. charges against you because you've said that. And hate I, speech. I have at the moment a hate speech charge running against myself mm. because um, I, I put a banner with the slogan Islamization kills on a, on a rooftop of a, of a party headquarters. Oh dear. These are similar slogans oh to those dear. used by neo Nazi and fascist groups. <laughs> now you see, this is all technique. This is all framing technique. He says these are similar slogans to what are you what the, to what uh, neo Nazis and fascists use. Now he's not saying that he's saying things that Nazis say, and he's not saying that he's a Nazi, but he's saying, well, this is kind of similar to what Nazis say. 
So, and then you make the conclusion. You draw the conclusion in your own mind. You decide, well, this guy's a fucking Nazi. Fuck him. Right? Remember the 60 to 70% statistic? That's just rhetoric. This kind of rhetoric. It's dangerous. Hate, hate speech. You, you've been charged with hate speech? Well, this, this is the kind of thing a Nazi would say. Right? But Martin's urbane charisma and clever phrasing is helping clever the phrasing. identitarians rebrand what far right means in Europe. Far right. As a result, identitarian cells are forming in many European cities. Oh, it's a crisis. Martin says Angela Merkel's decision to open borders to one million Syrian refugees last summer helped create the movement and prompted a high-profile action in Berlin. Isn't old Europe beautiful? What's the difference? You, you were accused by your opponents as being neo-Nazi, being fascist, <laughs> Here we go. being right-wing. Many of the things you say, they say as well. So what, what is different between you and them? The core message is that we respect every culture and we think that, that um, normal uh, migration is, is um, yeah, just um, something that always happening, will always happen. But we, what we don't want is the massive immigration and the demographic replacement of our peoples in Europe. It's against massive immigration, non-European Islamic massive immigration. So non-European sounds racist. Why? <laughs> Non-European. Sounds racist to me. <laughs> Sounds racist. If you say more diversity, you always mean less Europeans. And that's, in a way... Yes, good comment from DTF on YouTube. The reporter calls them cells, like terror cells. My view is race in itself. Is it fair to say, do you think, that you use fear? Use fear. Um, fear because of the way, you, you know, you mentioned the jihadis, you mentioned taking over your communities. I mean, you're using fear in a way to further that goal. Using fear, ladies and gentlemen, using fear. You see, because there are no legitimate fears when it comes to mass immigration. There are no legitimate concerns for people living in a city which uh, they can see themselves becoming the minority of where, you know, especially when, when we're talking about Europe, Europeans are the indigenous people of Europe, believe it or not. I know it sounds like a crazy idea. So we are talking about essentially indigenous people becoming minorities in their homelands, which is, I thought this was something that we've been against for a very long time. I thought we hated the idea of indigenous people being becoming minorities in their homelands, didn't we? Haven't we? Haven't we railed against this for decades? At least since the 60s. But now, I guess, you know, if you're a colonizer, if you're a would-be colonizer, good news. It's now just sounds racist. Well done. No problem. They're not legitimate fears. They're not legitimate concerns. You're just using fear. Using fear to push an agenda, apparently. Of course, the fear of being labeled an, a Nazi on television, that's that's a legitimate fear because you are a Nazi. Sikai, you're a Nazi. You're a filthy Nazi dog. That's I think that's completely wrong. The fear is real. The fear um, is there in the eyes of the people I talk to. 
we are giving them hope. We are trying to, to take this anger, and frustration, fear and uh, fuel it into a demographic, um, democratic change, into, into activism, peaceful, non-violent activism. Peaceful, non-violent activism. Sounds like a Nazi to me. Okay, let me show you this. Again, just in case, just in case you weren't aware. And yes, I will put links to this in the podcast description. Migration and the 2030 Agenda. <clears throat> this, ladies and gentlemen, as part of the UN's Agenda 2030, a large part of it is addressing migration, mass migration into the future, into urban centres specifically. Because you see, people living, it's all about what they call Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. If you want to do research, this is research. You have to pour through pages and pages and pages of official bureaucratic nonsense to really figure out what you're dealing with here. So what I have here is actually a handbook that's handed out to people at all levels of government, uh, people who work in communications, for example, political operatives, counsellors, people who are involved in policy framing and that kind of thing. This is a handbook that's handed out to them to help sell the Agenda 2030, uh, the UN's 2030 Agenda, specifically in the area of making migration popular again. Make migration great again, you might say. Down here on page 83, examples of possible interventions. An intervention is how you might try to control a conversation or, dare I say, control a narrative or, dare I say, get your message out there like so many alt-right Nazis that we just watched using Facebook, which absolutely must be banned according to the New York Times. Governments may wish to implement a new policy and or legislation as a way to address the migration-related goals and targets they have prioritised. This can be effective, an effective way to bring about, quote, transformative change across one or multiple targets. One of the arguments put forward in the Agenda 2030 document is that mass migration is better for the planet if we can get everybody living in big urban centres. Move everybody into the big cities. Once again, America's forced financial flight fleeing unaffordable and dysfunctional cities. That was today. A policy coherence approach, this is the UN document, that considers how other policies in areas such as labour, housing, health or agriculture affect and are affected by migration can be applied by mainstreaming migration into other policies. What does that mean? I know it's a bit word salady, this bureaucratic stuff, but stick with me. For example, a government may integrate migration into its labour and education strategies and policies factoring migration dynamics and migrant skills into labour market forecasts and planning of national demand and supply of skills. Ladies and gentlemen, if people are going to be against migration policy, people like the identitarians of Austria that we just saw, if people are going to be viscerally uh, upset by seeing their towns transformed before their eyes and being called a Nazi for opposing it, we introduce migration policies through the back door. So if you're coming up with a labour policy, you need to factor in migration. Well, here's our new labour policy, and in our new labour policy, we want to increase migration for this particular sector by 45%. 
and they can bring their families, right? Housing policies, well, we need to build X amount of new dwellings and we need X amount of new people to fill them. And all on the economic boom, ladies and gentlemen, the economic boom, everybody will be benefited by it. Except here in the real world, once again, America's forced financial flight fleeing unaffordable and dysfunctional cities. Immigration policy by the back door. I want to show you this. This this came out a few years ago. Who saw this? In October 14 of 2016, Pentagon video warns of unavoidable dystopian future for world's biggest cities. Three years ago, this article came out today. Fleeing unaffordable and dysfunctional cities. Three years ago, a video was leaked from the Pentagon. A training video, much like this, is a training handbook for people to learn the techniques required to convince people to support mass migration and how to adapt it into policy where it becomes less, uh, would you say, uh, what's the word I'm searching for here? Less confrontational for, you know, they love using terms like this for stakeholders, ladies and gentlemen. So much like this is an educational document for people that work in government and communications. Uh, a video was leaked from the Pentagon for their own education. In a video entitled Mega Cities, Urban Future, The Emerging Complexity, a five-minute video that has been used at the Pentagon's Joint Special Operations University. Okay, so let's have a little look at this video that was used for educational purposes by the Pentagon at the Joint Special Operations University. Remember, this came out three years ago. Today, we're reading stories of people fleeing megacities. The future is urban. By 2030, urban areas are expected to grow by 1.4 billion, with that growth occurring almost entirely in the developing world. Cities will account for 60% of the world's population and 70% of the world's GDP. The urban environment will be the locus where drivers of instability will converge. This is it is the domain that video. by the year 2030, 60% of urban dwellers will be under the age of 18. The cities that grow the fastest will be the most challenged as resources become constrained and illicit networks fill the gap left by overextended and undercapitalized governments. The risk of natural disasters compounded by geography, climate changes, unregulated growth, and substandard infrastructure intersect to frustrate humanitarian relief. Growth will magnify the increasing separation between rich and poor. Religious and ethnic tensions will be a defining element in the social landscape. Stagnation will coexist with unprecedented development as impoverishment, slums, and shanty towns rapidly expand alongside modern high-rises, technological advances, and ever-increasing levels of prosperity. This is the world of our future. It is one we are not prepared to effectively operate within, and it is unavoidable. Megacities are complex systems where people and structures are compressed together in ways that defy both our understanding of city planning and military doctrine. It is an ecosystem that demands a highly agile and adaptive force to successfully operate within. Infrastructures will vary radically with concentrations of high-tech transportation, globally connected air and seaports, contemporary water, utilities and waste disposal intermixed with open landfills, overburdened sewers, polluted water and makeshift power grids. 
Living habitats will extend from the high-rise to the ground-level cottage to subterranean labyrinths, each defined by its own social code and rule of law. Social. Remember the document from the UN, ladies and gentlemen. For some SDGs, which is sustain Sustainable Development Targets, ladies and gentlemen, Sustainable Development Goals, targets designing and implementing migration programming will be appropriate. For example, if a government decides to take action on a target, protecting labour rights and promote safe and secure working environments for all workers, they may decide that a specific program that promotes ethical recruitment will contribute towards progress on this target. Here's the best one. And this, this is why I'm showing you this document, which is literally a teaching document for people who work in politics in order to push mass migration policies. Quote, how many, you, know, you know how you sometimes when you see people on TV and you're like, wow, they're all saying the same thing. Everyone at all level of politics, when it comes to this argument about mass migration, they all sound the same. There's a reason. They've all read the handbook. This handbook. This one. Quote, actors, which was, you know, people in politics, can use human rights-based approaches to various, to address various SDG migration linkages. For example, to further certain prioritised targets, governments may choose to strengthen migrant access to justice, improve access to basic services for urban internally displaced people, provide assistance in protracted refugee crises, uphold internationally set labour rights or address various issues around child migrants using rights-based approaches. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, when you see all of the politicians of a particular persuasion all saying the same thing and repeating the same lines, lines that have no place being in a discussion about mass migration the way you address it with things like this, the economic argument fleeing unaffordable and dysfunctional cities, the reason that they're all speaking the same way is because they've all read the handbook. This, this handbook. That is literally sent out to every, signal signat every single signatory in the UN who has signed up to the 2030 agenda in regards to mass migration. And it's not just the top government, it's state government, it's local government, it's the lot. It's all of them. That's why they all sound the same. So I will have all of these links in the show notes. If you want to watch the rest of this uh, literally Pentagon educational video for the people at the Joint Special Operations University, feel free to do so and share it around. I do try to end on a high note, being that it is Earth Day and the end of Easter. Ladies and gentlemen, Classified CIA files reveal who Jesus really was and the coming end of days. It's about time we got to the bottom of this. Declassified files from the CIA archives reveal the strange book, The Adam and Eve Story, dating from 1966. It is contained in a packet of other documents alongside an article from Time magazine and a transmittal slip. Listed on the handwritten document includes a toolbox, tire gauges, key holder and fender repair kit. The book, written by author Chan Thomas, makes us oh no, not Chan, not another Chan, makes a string of outrageous claims about the history of the world and the coming cataclysm linked to the Bible story of Noah's flood. Reasons for the CIA's classification of this text and other items is unknown, but its resurfacing has inflamed conspiracy theories. 
Handwritten on the front of the scan book is 4RTL from, with the second name clearly redacted by the CIA, suggesting the text may have been seized from someone given it as a gift. Thomas makes a series of claims in the book. The world is subject to, quote, cyclical pole shifts. It claims civilization is wiped away every 7,000 years by this cataclysmic event, which was foreseen by figures throughout history, including Jesus. He claims Jesus is not the prophetic figure we know him as in the Bible, but instead a scholar who trained in India. And it writes that Jesus had predicted a, num a coming disaster and attempting to prepare people for the end times with the last cataclysm being Noah's flood. There you go. Thomas claims to have translated Jesus' dying words on the cross, claiming he was actually speaking the language he learned in India, in which he said, I am fainting, I am fainting, darkness is overcoming me. And he alleges on Easter Sunday, when Jesus is said to have ascended to heaven, he was actually picked up by a space vehicle. There you go. The true story about Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he wasn't resurrected on Easter Sunday. This classified CIA. It must be true. It must be true. He wasn't resurrected and, and picked up and sent to heaven. He was indeed picked up by a UFO. He was a man who studied in India who discovered the truth about the world, being that it ends every 7,000 years or so, and he was trying to warn everyone to get the fuck out. Get the fuck out while you still can. And I thought that was a tremendous way to wrap up Earth Day for another year. So happy Earth Day, everyone. Happy Jesus uh, riding aboard a UFO for you believers out there. And like I said, uh, a lot of good stuff in the show notes today. Grab that migration and the 2030 agenda training manual that we went over. Grab that Pentagon video Just and just spend a few minutes reading through it. Because this is the handbook that they hand out to people that work in government to sell other people on the idea that mass migration is a net is not only a net benefit, it's a reality that everybody is just going to have to get used to. And there's no stopping it. And of course, any any opposition to this reality would be indeed racist. Don't forget, America's forced financial flight fleeing unaffordable and dysfunctional cities. So thanks so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you had a wonderful Earth Day and a happy Easter as well. Until next time, guys, stay calm, stay rational. God bless. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.
Thanks, Kip. Happy Earth Day, everyone. Happy Earth Day. All right, guys. I'll see you tomorrow.